Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman. My special guests today are Dee Smith, the executive director of the NFL Players Association, and Dr. Chris Howard, the president of Robert Morris University, a member of the Knight Commission, former college football player, graduate of the Air Force Academy, road scholar, helicopter pilot, and intelligence officer for the Joint Special Operations Command. Dee, your resume is good. Chris's is better. The conversation you're about to hear covers a lot of ground, including the prospects of the NFL returning, the rights of college athletes, and issues of race in sports and society. And it is one of the highlights of my professional career. I mean that with all seriousness. It's also probably the only conversation I've had that references Superman 1, Hamilton, George Orwell, and Gladiators. Before we get to the conversation, I want to make sure I acknowledge all of the great feedback I received from listeners about the first episode. I won't go through every one of the comments, but to sum it up, many of you passionately believe that I should not be using a headshot of myself from 20 years ago as the logo for the podcast. So I thank you, my loyal listeners, for that feedback. Now, on to the podcast. Here we go. Welcome, D. Smith and Dr. Chris Howard, and thank you for coming on. Let's jump right in to the first question. Lot going on, lot to cover. I want to start with you, D. Negotiations you went through with the NFL in 2010, fairly contentious. A little bit of negotiation, a little bit of litigation, a little bit of everything. You get a long term deal. You then negotiate a new deal in March. Yep. And you probably think you're going to go on vacation for a couple of years because, as we know, union leaders don't do anything in between labor negotiations. Nothing, nothing. And then the pandemic hits and you're faced with having to negotiate a whole new set of terms for return to play. There's time pressure. There's this incredible show of solidarity on the, by the players on social media and you get a deal done. What, what was the key to actually getting the negotiation done as we got closer to time to report to camp? You know, great, great question. You know, I think the key well can i can i say keys i think it was probably three big keys first key was we had already set up the framework for a potential solution to playing football in a pandemic by having a long term deal already done so unlike you know unlike some of the other sports who are now trying to fit a solution into a deal that's expiring or trying to fit a deal into a, a force majeure clause that gives the league a unilateral right to cancel the CBA, we were blessed with having another 11-year deal that provided a framework. And, and so that was kind of key number one. Um, key number two, you've already mentioned it, our, our guys came through. And, and for a union that has always, you know, since I've been here, tried to ensure that we have a functioning democracy. I am always comfortable with a messy democracy. The deal in March was about as messy uh, a democratic process as possible, um, maybe too messy. Guys came through in a way in which demonstrated, I, I think, a lot of maturity, sobriety that came out of the March, you know, not just March, but, you know, the lead up to the March vote. And then last, you know, the, the pandemic, as bad as it is, allowed or forced our players to come to grips with 
this wasn't going to disappear overnight in order to, if I just had to quote someone that we may not want to name, the, the reality of the danger that comes from football in a, in a pandemic, the reality that our players breathe on top of each other, that it's probably the, the most difficult sport to manage in a pandemic, I think forced our guys to understand that just kind of shrugging our shoulders and, and saying, well, let's just get back to football was, was not an option. And I, I think it's fair to say, and, and Chris, let me turn this one over to you, that NFL players, NBA players wouldn't have the protections they have in place if it weren't for their unions and it weren't for their show of solidarity within their unions. And it's one thing for a pro athlete to be represented by a union, paid for their performance, for them to balance the risk of catching this virus versus the economic rewards of playing. But how do we answer those questions and feel comfortable about it when it comes to college athletes and in particular college football players when we're seeing this real desire, certainly from the Autonomy Five, to bring football back. And we've seen some schools have asked college athletes to sign waivers saying they acknowledge the risk. Uh, and then Texas announced they're only only going to have 50,000 fans in their stadium for football games. And this reminds me a little bit of what John Barry has said. When you mix science and politics, you get politics. I I'm a little worried that if you mix uh, science and sports, you just get sports. So are, what are we doing, Chris? What can be done to make sure the college athletes' rights are protected in the absence of a union? Well, as a uh, Texas high school football player, big champion, uh, 1986, 50,000 seems a little light, doesn't it? If we don't have anything, we got to have a sense of humor. Uh, but, but, but what we also have to believe in is our institutions. And I think that the National Football uh, League Player Association, led ably by D, is an institution that players uh, believe in and believe have their best interests uh, at heart. I think in terms of higher education, where we deal with amateur student-athletes, there are other uh, proxies, as it were, for institutions and entities that keep players, whether it be football players, volleyball players, swimmers, uh, keep their best interests at heart. I'm a former D1 football player at the United States Air Force Academy. My brother played at Baylor. Son played D3 football at uh, Swanee. Other son ran track at Middlebury and niece played volleyball at Wake and, and at Furman. Why do I say that? I, I've been in the arena, as uh, Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt would say. And I, I take seriously, and this comes from the Knight Commission doctrine, that chancellors and presidents need to think about student athletes as students first. And I have done that, and I believe that my colleagues have done that. And, and although it's not as direct as what union representation would be, it would be uh, uh, wrong-headed to think that we're not concerned about student athletes, who, by the way, um, not to a person, but, but a, a large majority, want to play in some way. Right. So the other part of the mission there, Gabe, it's like students want to come at the campus. I think it's like 90, 88% or 95% of students want to come at the campus. Now, how we do that safely, the proof's in the pudding. we got to get down to the details. Players want to play. Whether it be this semester, next semester, we got to get into the details. So I'm in a couple of leagues. I'm in the Horizon League. We're in the Big South for football. We have used this sort of postpone and listen pay attention to the experts. I have a lot of faith and confidence in, in Brian Hainline, the chief medical officer for the NCAA, had him out on campus. He's a friend. He's not the decider on what we do, 
but the mechanisms brought into play in terms of how we do this are sharpening every day. And what what we're doing now is we're listening, we're paying attention. Because you notice right now, Gabe, nobody's strapping it on. It's not like we're playing right now. Our first game is scheduled for, I think, September 3rd, and we won't be playing on September 3rd or, or thereabouts if we don't think it's the right thing to do for our student-athletes. So uh, don't, I think one should not confuse conversation with with the actual decision because the decision has not been taken just yet, and we're kind of working our way through it. Yeah, that's a great point and, and, and a great clarification. And you mentioned the arena. And so, Dee, I want to ask you, because I know you've talked about the idea of players as gladiators and disliking the analogy and yeah. just because it, it makes the players seem less than. So I, I wonder if as we're pushing for the return of sports generally, college, pro, all sorts of different levels, not just football, baseball, basketball, all the different sports out there, are we taking a step back in the way we view athletes and the role of sports. And I'll just read this one quote from a college football coach who, who may coach down the road from me here in New Orleans saying, I don't think we can take football away from these players, take this away from our state and our country. We need football. Football is the lifeblood of our country. In my opinion, it gets everything going. It gets the economy going, the economy of Baton Rouge, the economy of the state of Louisiana. So you can guess what coach yeah. said that. What, what do you think about that sentiment and and this idea, again, of the we need the players back there because they're going to save the country, which obviously just seems backwards, I think, to most people. Um, yeah. But when there are potential lives at risk. Yeah. I, you know, I, you've had me on before teaching your class and, and you know how I react to things like that. I don't let our members call themselves gladiators because it simply means that you were less than the people who were watching what was going on in the arena. So that's, you know, the, the quickest way for my guys and, and myself to mix it up behind closed doors real quick is drop the word gladiator and, and we go. As for the comment, you know, th there's so much loaded into that comment. We could, we could spend an hour on everything that's wrong in that comment. I mean, if if the economics of a jurisdiction is is entirely dependent on college football, that's a problem. I mean, I don't know how many ways to look at it, but if if men and women are in a community are entirely or primarily economically dependent on the work of people who are under the age of 25 who are where their primary mission is to go to school. Let's just say that sounds odd. As for America needs football, America needs to wear masks. Uh, you know, we America needs to get our people back to work. I mean, we need to insulate ourselves against a pandemic. And, and while I love football, I did get into this with, you know, it, it might have been Chris Mortensen or, or somebody else from, from ESPN about whether football is essential. Football is not essential. And, and I get it. I get that some places need it. Some places want it. Some places live for it. But in essence, that quote was saying football is essential. And if football is essential, I don't know what to call 
a first responder, a nurse, a doctor, a police officer, somebody who's defending our borders, somebody who's overseas. <laughs> if if the only word we have is essential and I have to apply it to either that group or football, I'm going to choose the other group. You know, so I, I, I think where this has to meet out is do our guys want to play football? Yes. I mean, it, it, it's what they it's what they do. It's what they live for. Is it my job to remind them that this is how you might think at 24? It might not be the way you want to think about it at 54. And and by the way, it doesn't have to be binary. So what we've tried to do is create a system where it's as safe as possible to engage in a business that's dangerous. And, 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 you, and that you do that all the time. Yep. And that, yep. you know, universities, people understand chancellors and presidents are in the risk mitigation business. We try to get students or student athletes uh, not to drink when they're not supposed to drink or not drink too much put on their seatbelt or not take drugs or not give drugs they're prescribed to someone else who's not prescribed those drugs. And we do sensible and thoughtful way. And I think you're right. I love the comment about the mask. And I love that part about essential. I do think that football and sports are special. Yes. Agree with you. It's a treasured part of the civic glue that makes our union, our union on, on, on a great day, whether it be a high school, a pro or our collegiate. But to your point, um, it has to be navigated and regulated and done in a thoughtful way. But I, I think the word I would use would be special, not 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 essential. Yeah, I, and I agree with you. And, and and look, our churches are important to our civic and and social glue. Voting is is essential. But what will we do in a pandemic? We figure out a way to accomplish those things without making the choice binary. And and I just don't like binary talk because as soon as you buy into binary talk. You take a step back from trying to balance the safety and the necessity and, and, and the humanity of what goes into the endeavor, right? And, and that's why that quote, I saw it and, and I heard it. And by the way, you know, you, you can line up probably 32 NFL coaches and 45 of them would echo the same thing. I mean, it's just, it's just the world we live in. But I also... And I don't mean this in a derogatory way. I don't talk to coaches. They don't pay me to talk to coaches. I only represent the players of the National Football League. And and I, I, I take a lot of time explaining what I'm about to say. My job is not to preserve football. It's not. My job is to, pervert, uh, to the best that I can, preserve and enhance the lives of the people who play it. And if we have to change football... In order for me to adhere to my fiduciary duty, football changes. If we can't play football because that's the only way to deal with my fiduciary duty, we don't play football. So what I try to stay away from are these binary frames that you have to do this or you have to do that because and on the days when I do meet somebody in a bar and they want to talk about why they hate the union and I decide for sporting reasons, this should be a comedy conversation. I always ask someone, when you say football, I don't know what you're talking about. Because I know that football in the 1920s, and, and you quoted you know, one of my heroes, Teddy Roosevelt, when Teddy Roosevelt stepped in to, frankly, save football, 
Yeah. Because of the deaths that were happening on the field, what happened? Football changed. The flying wedged went away. The 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 crackbacks went away. When we outlawed whipsaws, when we made it impossible to yank a player down from the back of of the shoulder pads, all of that was what? We changed football. So when someone says that we have to bring, bring football back, the first question I always have for them is, which football, right? I just want to save football because I I know that it's, it's a game that people love. It's a game that people watch. I haven't seen any of our revenue decline after we banned crack back block. Well, so it's interesting. The talk about essential versus special, I always look at it as sports are powerful. And they have the power to make a significant difference socially, politically, but just in a lot of different ways. And New Orleans was a great example of that when I moved here right before Katrina, that there was very little that unified this city and this region as much as the Saints. And is that a good thing that that was essential to bringing our city back? Not necessarily, but it did. It's a fact that that it was a, a meaningful part of it. And speaking of the importance of football, D, I think the number one question in the minds of every NFL fan right now is whether there will be an NFL season this year, particularly in light of what we've seen with Major League Baseball, where they haven't been able to get through a week without an outbreak. The chief medical officer for the NFL said that he was cautiously optimistic about the NFL season. On a scale of zero to 100, D, what is your level of optimism? Wow. Um... Well, you know, I famously got in trouble, I think, a few weeks ago on, I think it was Real Sports. And it was, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how do you feel a six? And, you know, let's just say that I got 60% hate mail after after that. You know, where we are right now, I'm not sure everybody, what I think what people thought was me posturing back then. I think people realize now I, I wasn't posturing. Six was cautiously optimistic. Yeah. And and I, I'm in the same place. The only thing I would, you know, put caveats around is when we started on this road of protocols and, and how we thought training camp was going to operate, we thought the country was going to be heading in one direction. And it's actually headed in the other direction and what we would believe is phase one of this pandemic. So I'm probably still a six, you know, six out of 10, not six out of a hundred, just to be not six out of a hundred. Let's, let's just say not six out of a hundred. I'm 65%. Let's, you know, what would, you know, what would get me to 95 if, if our fans wore masks. If honestly, you know, and, and this is just, it's just based in what we'll call, let's just say science and fact. If our fans embraced mask in the same way that they embrace and love their sports teams, I would go from a 65 to a 95 because the natural enemy to this virus is transmission. Right. And if you inhibit transmission, you you deal a death blow to the virus. And we're working on a real fans wear mask campaign now. You know, to me, that is the one thing that can that can make a huge difference 
if if the protocols across sports work nearly perfectly, but yet whether you emerge from the bubble or you go back outside or you go to the grocery store or you're in a place where there is a high viral load, you're more likely to, to get the virus. And if you get it, you are more likely to spread it to your teammates. And if it's spread to your teammates, there will be no games. I mean, I don't know how, how much more simple this could be. So how about if I say 65 with a hope that I believe in our fans and that we can get to 85. I hope we can get to 100. Let's switch gears for a minute and talk about college sports. And Chris, broadly speaking, I'd love to hear your perspective as a former college athlete and now a university president on the role that sports should play on a college campus. Not only football or or men's and women's basketball, as I know Robert Morris has moved to the Horizon League in the Big South, but as we're seeing schools start to cut more of the Olympic sports and Stanford, which for so long has been the model of broad-based opportunities in athletics, cutting 11 sports. What is the role of those Olympic sports and and how should they fit into college campuses? And and D, also curious to hear your thoughts as a father of a lacrosse player. So Chris, let me start with you. What, what, What do you see as the importance of sports for a university? Yeah, I, th- I think it's very important, but it needs to be broken down into, into several components. So we think about, I said before, I'm a firm believer in the amateur model of sport. I think it, it makes sense, harkening back to Theodore Roosevelt. There's a lot of court cases going on right now. Don Remy's a very busy man of the NCAA. But Mark Henry kind of reminding people what amateur sport means. Just because it's amateur sport doesn't mean it doesn't sit in the middle of big, big business. It just does. And we have reconciled that dichotomy for many, many years. And I don't think it's going to change in the near future. And and so the Nike Commission is thinking a lot about this right now. Gabe, you've seen this. Uh, The big revenue sports are the big revenue sports. They they, they can generate enough of what they need to, to run. There's arguments about do coaches get paid too much? Do ADs get paid too much? Whatever, whatever. But that has enough you know, uh, uh, P&L on it, you know, revenue, expenses and costs to kind of reconcile. The other sports are just different. They're highly subsidized and they're subsidized by pretty much men's basketball and, and, and football. I'm not saying that that's the way it ought to be, Gabe. I'm just saying that as a guy who has to balance the books every year, that's the reality living we live in. So we have to start with that. I think that there's an intrinsic value of all sport, Olympic sports being this at the top, as high on the list as any other sport. There's a quote from Douglas MacArthur, as an Air Force guy, it pains me to quote a West Pointer, but on the field, the construct are shown the seas and other days and other fields will bear the fruits of victory. What you learn in volleyball, what you learn in fencing, what you learn in you know, soccer, whatever, makes you a better human being, a better student, a better graduate, a better you know, father, mother, cousin, uncle, engineer, lawyer, whatever you do when you graduate. And I firmly, firmly believe that. But like other things that happen on our campus, it has to be underwritten. And the question becomes, what's going to be the new model to underwrite these great sports? And I know Bernard Muir at uh, Stanford. I know it, and I've been to his office, and I've seen the showcase of Olympic trophies that the teams at Stanford have won. It's, it's quite amazing. And, and I will tell you, it, it, it's going to impact us at a national level. I, I do, that is not lost on me, but I think we're going to have to reconcile and figure out different ways 
to get these folks out on the pitch, out on the court, out on the, you know, on the course or what have you, but recognizing that the model as it goes forward right now with the heavy subsidization from like student fees, which are getting beat up because of the, because of the COVID-19, because of some of these dollars being a duress, going back to your first point about CFP dollars or even in, in last year with the uh, NCAA playoffs, by the way, Robert Morris made it. <laughs> it wasn't able to play. <laughs> we won our championship and our women were headed. Um, we have to consider those and figure out a, a, a new way going forward. So I'll just stop there. Maybe we'll come back to it. But I wanted to kind of give kind of wet whistle a little bit. But it's it, it's important and it, it, it has a model and that model has to change in order for the sport. But I believe in our ingenuity as a system to figure out a way to get those folks to play. It just might be a little bit different than it was, say, five, 10 years ago. Thanks, Kristen. So, D, as a head of the union, but also a lacrosse dad. What, what's yeah. your view on the on this? I, I mean, look, I, I ran track four years in college. It, it, it was probably one of, you know, the two or three most e- important, significant experiences of my career. And and I think for a lot of men and women, it's the same thing. And and that's you know, what, what's interesting about that is, you know, I went to a small NII school in the middle of nowhere we weren't going to any championship, you know, anywhere. But to say that, you know, my coach changed my life, my teammates changed my life, is the same thing that hundreds of thousands of athletes are saying all over the place. And and I think that's a great thing. I, I think where the challenge becomes is when the and you spoke to it, when you try to balance that experience with the economic budget ramifications of what those sports, what some of those sports mean to some of those schools when it comes to subsidizing not only the football program, but every other sport that's there. So, you know, look, I read about Stanford. I found their decision, frankly, to be odd, primarily because I think they have the largest endowment on the planet. So I think it's interesting for a school with an endowment of that size to make a decision about cutting some sports, because I just think it's an interesting thing, but that's neither here nor there. I I think, you know, where, where we get crossways here is going back to the, the, the frame that I'm not here to preserve football. I'm only there to preserve, protect the people who are playing and working in our sport. I look at college and I look as, you know, the the son of the father of a son playing there, you know, bluntly, do I feel a certain way about what happened to Jordan McNair at Maryland two years ago and the way in which the university, you know, failed that student and failed the process of keeping that student and other students safe? And, and, you know, I don't mind saying it on your show because everybody at Maryland who has anything to do with the athletic department has heard it from me directly. So I'm not saying anything that that's a mystery. Um, but, you know, there was no NCAA investigation of the death of Jordan McNair. There was no negligent homicide investigation. Maryland brought that coach back only for him to be, you know, later fired because the governor intervened in Maryland. So 
where universities do a good job of protecting their students and holding coaches accountable, I don't have a problem. Where where I see those universities, and we don't have to name them, where we all know that the football coach is a, a, a demagogue <laughs> at those at those universities, where they are literally above scrutiny. And and you and I both know that there are certain schools where the athletic director is terrified of the football coach. I think that's where it's out of balance because I know that the system that any organization needs to be accountable and compliant has to be one that primarily operates outside of one single, and it's mostly a guy, a guy who only cares about how many games he's winning that year. If you have any system that is subject to his whim or her whim and their ability to influence that system, I will show you a system that doesn't, that isn't accountable to the students and isn't accountable to safety. And, and that's where, that's the only place where I get crossways. So the people that I love to death, strong, directed, visionary athletic directors. Where those people exist and where those people have the ability of holding people accountable in their system, I I know everybody cares about wins and losses. Those are my favorite places on earth because I know the students are going to have a similar experience as mine. And you're actually going to adhere to what our goal is to provide these young men and young women with an education. Yeah, it's critical for presidents and chancellors to, uh, especially, and having been on a, a several campuses over my life, from University of Oklahoma and, you know, ran Hampton Sydney at B3 school and now Robert Morris's mid-major FCS football, getting an AD that understands the whole thing that you got to win with character. You mentioned some coaches, D. I grew up with some great coaches across the board. As my brother, he played at Baylor with, with Coach Staff. I played with Fisher DeBerry, both of them in the Hall of Fame. And my high school coach is in the Hall of Fame, Tim, Tom uh, Kimbrough. But you got to do it and. You got to do it a certain way. And, and that's what we require of leaders in society, period, right? You, you can't win in the corporate world, uh, get your numbers and, and, and be cheating and unethical. You can't be winning in the medical world and cheating, be cheating and be unethical. We have to expect that same behavior from our athletic directors. But it, it's rather tricky. And, and, and then, so the president has to support and hire the right AD. And I'm happy I did this with this guy, Chris King. He's an alum. He's our new AD. And I like, like what he brings to the table. And I, also, boards have to think the same way. Yep. You know, at the end of the day, you use that word fiduciary. And that's one of the number one things that boards are. They're fiduciaries. 100%. 100%. So there's talk about some structural change in the NCAA and and realigning some of those incentives and we could talk in detail about how many head coaches are the highest paid employees in their state but d let me ask you first and then chris i'm curious to hear your thoughts on this we're starting to see some talk of college football player boycotts and we've already seen some and we've seen the power that college athletes can have if you look at missouri and other instances the step that's already been attempted through the Northwestern football players, and there, there's sort of a steady stream of talk about this, and it, in some ways it seems to be the greatest fear of the NCAA is unionization of 
college athletes, whether it's college football players or all college athletes, do you think that's necessary for college athletes to have a real voice in change? Or can it be that the the presidents, the ADs, the chancellors institute the structural change on their own? Well, I, I think you're seeing the growing need to exercise the, the, the power of those students, primarily because the NCAA hasn't done a good job of giving those players a voice. I mean, it, it you know, necessity is always the mother of invention, right? And so where where we've seen it, and, and you know, in full disclosure, we re- we helped, and, and I still stay in touch with Kane Coulter and the folks from Northwestern. We supported them in their NLRB fight. We've been on the front lines of, of the, the NIL, the use of player likenesses and, and names. Let's just create an alternate universe. W- what if we would have had a system for the last 10 years where there was an elected body of people who represented college athletes, who were college athletes, and those people actually had the power to sit down with the NCAA or the conferences and come up with better metrics or better rules to govern their, let's just call it work-life balance, right? School, work, practice, graduation rates, safety, healthcare, racism. Imagine a world where we, if we could, would have created an alternate universe and for the last 15 years, there were two bodies and and that group could actually sit down with those schools and the NCAA and reach agreements over these things. Well, I think if we would have had that alternate universe, you would not have seen or you may not have seen the flex from the Missouri football players. I know you wouldn't have seen it with the Northwestern players because remember that fight started over a difference in rules between a person who was going to get their one grad year and a a player like Kane Coulter, who was good enough to start for four years. The only reason they moved to unionize was because the players who were good enough to play for four years got less academic offsets than the players who weren't and redshirted a year. So to answer your question, I kind of answer it in the negative. I know how, believe me, and, and Don Remy and I used to be law partners together, you know, for a period of time. And and it's fine that we're on the opposite side of stuff because I don't mind bringing the heat on anybody. But it's almost as if the NCAA has parachuted into 2020. And now it's, oh my goodness, we can't have these we can't have unions and we can't have players being represented collectively as a team because that will undo amateurism. What nobody's talking about is I haven't heard Mark Emert or Don Remy say anything about Ray Dennison, right? I mean, there's no Ray Dennison day for the NCAA. There's no wall trip day for the player at Alabama who was paralyzed and didn't have enough health care to take care of himself after he was permanently injured in a college game. You can't parachute into 2020 and then throw your hands up and say, 
unionization of col- or collective action is bad when there's been a long history of players feeling that the NCAA hasn't been responsive? Yeah, I think that's an important question you're dealing with here. And as the non-lawyer, I'm going to be, I'm going to parse my. I'm not a good one, so don't (laughs) don't worry. I I heard you talk, man. I, 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 if I needed to go to uh, court or in the battle or into the the football field, I want you with me, D. I could tell already just talking with you. Very thoughtful comments. I would say a couple things. So one is the NCAA is, uh, you know, a bit of a battleship and less of a speedboat. It doesn't turn real quickly. And I've said before that. Uh, Mark's job there is more like uh, Pelosi than like Trump. It's more like uh, leading the legislature than it is executive leadership. It's just there's just a lot a lot of players in the orchestra. He's not Roger Goodell. He's not Adam Silver. He's it's a different play to do things. We're a federated, confederated entity where the members give voice, and then we, we can get into this as well. I mean, plus the football piece is not in the NCA. They just validate who goes to a bowl game. It's a college football playoff. That actually, it was a selection committee member. I wasn't in the governance part. That's actually what drives the big dollars anyway. I think the NCA and the Knight Commission's done a good job pushing this with the name, image, and likeness is trying to use be a little bit more woke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll get to do some LeBron James uh, pushing a, a lot of people with that uh, on, on on the shop and signing that document in the California legislature and the government got ahead of that. And then you see all sorts of really thoughtful people getting into the to the fray to the conversation uh, again i'll say the night commission has been a part of that but it does it's a continuum deal what you're talking about but i do want to say this though having been in nca governance at many levels and, and having two sons that were at uh, SACS student athlete advisory council uh, smart presidents and staff members from the nca listen to their SAC representatives yes uh, and, and so how that manifests itself and, and as you describe as sort of uh, this other entity that would be unionized or what have you is a is a very reasonable point of discourse but what is what is paramount and what is positive is a sense of agency amongst our student athletes and uh, again as a, having been a president a little bit over 11 years um i know that if i don't listen to my student athletes or the student athlete or the students in general uh it's fraught it's i'm going to come out the wrong way you don't do exactly what they always tell you to do right listen to them because these are smart young people. And, and the thing about right now, which is really interesting in, in, in light of the, the, I call the public lynching of George Floyd, and it goes back a little bit before this as well, black athletes in particular, but student athletes in general, but especially the black athletes that are in the, uh, the, 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 the sports that are generating the most revenue being men's basketball and football. You talk about a time when these guys are powerful. I mean, whether a union or not, when these players say things collectively or individually, things change. How long did Mississippi have the Confederate flag on their flag? How many great people, Medgar Evers, right, Fannie Lou Hammer, some of the most prominent voices in black history, American history, that thought that flag symbolized something that, that was untoward and, and, and impressive, that wanted it changed? But then you get a couple of Ole Miss and Mississippi State football players that start saying, I'm not going to play unless then all of a sudden you get alignment. So I'm not saying I'll tell you what I'm not. I'll tell you what I am saying. I'm just saying that it's a pretty heady time in terms of agency for our student athletes, especially our football players and our and our men's basketball players, because and maybe some of it's part of the earlier conversation because of the dollars that are wrapped into it. And recognizing that they have something to say about those dollars and safe and healthy 
D, to your point, has to be a big part of it as well. Yep. And look, I, I agree a hundred percent. You know, I, I, I think where, you know, Mark um, and, and Don and I would, would have a spirited conversation would be absolutely right on those things. But, you know, we inherit, and I, I choose that word carefully, we inherit every player from the farm league system called the NCAA. We do. And when you talk to our guys about the how they tried to balance practice, sports, school, and everything else, they didn't feel a lot of agency. Mm. And, and I think that now, and I think your description of them being a, you know, a large ship, an aircraft carrier, not a speedboat, is an apt one. Now they are finding themselves in a world where if they don't turn quickly, if they don't change direction quickly, they are fearing the, their loss of power and the loss of control. And, and what I would say to them is, well, you know, it was a very long sale, right? Um, you're at a point now, though, where I do believe that everything that has been going on in the world that we have witnessed, as well as what hasn't happened at the top of our government, has led a group of people, primarily young people, to start to simply demand change. Mm. And, and I think one of two things is going to happen. That aircraft carrier will become a more nimble ship and start making some turns. Or those students are going to start forcing their individual schools to turn and their conferences to turn. And I think that we could look back on this conversation that we're having today, 10 years from now, and say this was kind of the beginning of the end of the NCAA, because I do believe conferences will change. I really do. I think that what's going to happen, frankly, on the likeness side, I think you're going to find schools starting to deal with recruiting athletes who are going to be interested in my image and my likeness. And I think that you're going to see 16, 17, 18-year-olds start thinking about that. And I think conferences are going to have to respond to that. And, and so the NCAA is going to be faced with a choice. There is going to be conferences who decide to do one thing and the NCAA being quiet about another, or you're going to see the, some sort of systemic design. I don't know which one is going to happen, but it's pretty cool to watch be, because, to your point, the people who came before us, literally the people who died before us, found themselves in an era where individual action became the only thing they felt was left to do. You know, Medgar's March was born out of a frustration that the political process didn't work, other things didn't work, and it was an individual person deciding this is the role that I'm going to play for change. And what I, I'm seeing is a new form or brand of that writ large. And, and to your point, when a group of players in a southern state decide that their flag needs to look differently or it needs to come down, 
and it comes down, man, well, two things come from that. One, that's power. And two, you we all know power what? Mimics itself. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of excited about it because I, I do think it creates opportunity. And I think for those people who have vision and aren't afraid, to your point, of, of engaging with their students, I think those places are going to be, become even greater places to go to school. Yeah, I, like, I like when you started off with Theodore Roosevelt. We've been referring to him for a while, that it wasn't always this way. We, we have iterated to get to where we are now. And, you know, we talked a little bit about safety earlier. I, I like to, to say that in terms of safety, I'm of the generation that had water breaks in football, but after salt tablets, right? And then when I played, it was, especially in Plano and in Air Force, especially in high school, it was, it's water break time. Now it's, you drink water all the time. So we have evolved at how we play the game. And you did a great job delaying that out in terms of the rules uh, and the physiology of it, the how we administer it from a health and safety standpoint, but how we govern ourselves and sport pro, we're talking about college now, it, it does need to evolve. And yeah. it should not feel like we're stuck in the mud. Gabe's, Gabe, Gabe needs to ask us another question because he, he, he <laughs> No, this is perfect. I, I, all right. I left the room for 20 minutes. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize you guys were still here. <laughs> so so uh, on that note, and again, I could listen to you guys talk for, for hours. This, right. is, this is awesome. I love it. So, it's great. Uh, on that note of progress, Chris, I this story, I, I wish more people knew it, and, and I'm going to tell part of it now, and I just want to hear your thoughts on this, but your great-great-grandfather was born a slave. You're the first black president, we're the first black president of Hampton Sydney College, a school that was originally built on a plantation in 1735. In 2012, nearly 300 people at that college protested the re-election of Barack Obama. And about 40 of them threw bottles, shouted racial epithets, and, and set off fireworks outside the minority student union on campus. The president of the college in 1861 raised a company of Hampton Sydney men to fight for the Confederacy. They lost, though. The, the important <laughs> they, 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 but so you are the first black president of that college and now the first black president at Robert Morris University. Just tell me about what you've seen that's been different since you started your career to where you are now. Sure. So my great-great-grandfather, Amos Howard, was a slave. He lived to be 105 years old. My father remembers him. He lived so long that my father was a little boy, remembers his great-grandfather. And the fact that somebody that was chattel or property, that's that's a, that's a legal term. Property was no different than the, the seats that are on now, that a couple of generations later would be the president of two fine colleges and universities, Hampton Sydney College down in Virginia and now Robert Morris University here in Pennsylvania. I would say that, and it's a, it's a quote that President Obama used to refer to, but it was Lincoln who said that our union is not yet perfected. And it has been, and going back to what I just said with D, it has been an evolutionary process. And for Black people, we wish it could be more revolutionary because yeah. Malcolm X said we didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. And no, that's not that's not lost on me at all, that journey, that arc. In that arc, arc and in that journey, whether it be at Hampton, Sydney or whatever, there have been bright spots. You know, that is the same town, Farmville, Virginia, where they, 
during massive resistance, they closed the schools and would not integrate. But professors from Hampton Sydney taught the black kids and the poor white kids that couldn't go into the white flight academy. Later on, that white flight academy became uh, a private school, independent school where my son played lacrosse, D, and he became wow. student president at that school, you know, six, seven, eight years ago. That was Joshua, my son Joshua Howard. So, you know, there, there is progress. There is pain. Um, my story, my narrative is an American narrative, is an African-American narrative. And Dee could tell you to tell you similar stories about being what my friend Melody Hobson on the board of uh, Starbucks and at Ariel Capital says, onlyness. I've been a lot of the only one in the room and trying to work hard to open the door and, and offer opportunities for other people. So, yeah, I could reboot, revisit and, and, and talk about the challenging times when I've been called the N-word. <laughs> when I've been uh, um, not so happy about people in my community where they've acted toward each other. But I could also tell you that the most promising and positive stories, I think right now, I was on the phone with the president of the uh, Gates Foundation, the CEO of the Gates Foundation, a guy named Mark Sisman. We're Rhodes classmates. Uh, we were doing a Zoom call right before this game. And, the, and he grew up in South Africa, like my wife. My wife is oh, wow. color. And so she grew up in basically Jim Crow. I mean, the, the stories, my wife who's younger than me and a lot, a lot better looking, her stories are commensurate with my mom and dad's story, right? right. So Mark, who grew up in that same era, we were Rose Scholars together, we're like, the, the quintessential question, is it a movement or is it a moment? And I would say that it's feeling more like a movement. Part of what we talked about before with Dean and I talking about these student athletes and the change that they've implemented of all backgrounds, but especially African-American ones, but it just, feels like I'm getting more, achieving more agency now, although not perfect. And there's just a recognition, a recognition and eyes wide openness. And Mark and I were saying the same thing, that this, this is just different, right? And I'm, and I'm sensing that now. So Gabe, I hope I, I've spoken to it. I, I do not um, brush over tough times that have happened in the past. I just feel very bullish on the future. Yeah, thank you. And, and Dee, let, let, me, let me ask you, because you've told a story about when you ran for class president at Cedarville and, and someone apparently wrote an open letter and signed their name on it that, that called you the N-word. And, and I'm sure you can both tell more stories than, than, than I would like he to lost, believe. He that lost too. He <laughs> lost too? Yeah. <laughs> so, but you said, Dee, and this is sort of stuck with me, and I think you said this last month, you don't want to be in a world where you have to tell your kids that you don't think it's getting better. So, what what are we telling our kids right now? And and Chris, you touched on some of it. And so, D, if you'd want to start off, what do we tell our kids? How, how is it getting better? When's it going to get better? I, well, I, I tend to choose that they can make it better. And and to me, you know, I I'm brutally honest, you know, with with my kids, you know, now especially, you know, Alex is an athlete who's got a scholarship to play lacrosse at Maryland. You have two jobs. One of them is more important than the other, but you have two jobs. And and so I, I for me, it I'm not sure they would quote unquote buy sort of me saying it's going to get better or it's getting better or you know your world is going to be better than than my world. I tell them what my parents told me and we had similar backgrounds. Great grandfather, great grandmother was a slave, grew up my family grew up in, in Southern Virginia, they are probably like yours. They grew up in a way where they always told me that we could make it better, but they did so without a level of bitterness that 
that I'm always surprised that they never had. And so what I try to tell my kids is you can make it better, but it is so important for you to be optimistic and not bitter. And, and I fought battles. You don't have to fight mine. You will fight yours, but, but, but you have to make this better or you have to have this opportunity to make it better. And, and I think that level of hopefulness is where we have seen us at our best and where there has been the absence of hope is where we've seen America at its worst. Let, let me ask you then a, a more specific question and then a, one more question. I'll let you guys yeah, go. But let me just read some numbers that you're both familiar with. But there are I bet three black head coaches in the NFL out of out of 32 of the 1073 head coaches in NCAA sports at Power 5 programs, 79 or 7.4% are black. There are six black presidents at FBS institutions. The number of athletic directors of colored FBS institutions declined from 22 in 2017 to 20 in 2018. Of the 65 Power 5 schools, 15 do not employ a single black head coach in any NCAA sport. And only one sport has more than 15 Power 5 black head coaches, and that is track and field. So I know you've you've both thought about this and worked on this, but there's a you know, there are tangible, discrete, objective markers of a lack of progress in that space, and and in fact, in some cases, a regression. So what I, I know you've talked about this before, but what what do we do? What can we do? We've seen that maybe it takes FedEx and and sponsors to get a football team to change its offensive name after decades. Is that the answer? It's just that money always has to talk. What what else can happen here? I, I can let, let me tell you what we're going to do in in the NFL. Roger asked for the union's help in achieving better diversity in NFL coaches. He asked about NFL coaches. We're going to respond with NFL coaches, front office, and and C level positions at the league office. He's about to get a letter pretty soon, but but here's where I've come out on it. First of all, we've had way too many groups and way too many f- former coaches offer apologies for the league's behavior. They're trying to do a good job. I know that their heart is in the right place. I'm tired of that because those are just words. So it seems to me that you have to increase the pipeline for people to be considered head coaches in the National Football League, and you have to decrease barriers to entry. For example, coaches in the National Football League, still, if you're an assistant coach in the National Football League and you want to move to another team, either to take the same job or to take a job you know, in a, in a, in a, in a more senior position, you have to go and get permission from your team owner before you even apply. Well, that's a barrier to entry, right? Nobody in the National Football League knows when coaching positions come open as coaches. No coaches know what standard salary. Nobody knows what are the standard benefits. No one has any transparency whatsoever. So, our position is going to be we want to partner with companies or I'm sorry, organizations like the NAACP 
who we believe will be a better, more transparent pipeline of coaches and coaching prospects coming from not only HBCUs, but every university. I would love to get every athletic director on board with, if you have a coach that has an interest in coming to the National Football League, we want to make that a part of a transparent system of hiring. What what hasn't worked, the Rooney Rule does not work. It has never worked because there's no accountability. This new, I think they're calling it the the enemy part of the Rooney rule. In my opinion, that is as doomed as the Rooney rule, because if you don't have transparency and accountability and measurements and a pipeline, it's not going to work. So to answer your question, Gabe, I, I don't know whether it's money, but I do know that there's only two groups of people in the national football league who have a union and that's the players and the referees. And when you look at everybody else who doesn't have a union, assistant coaches and cheerleaders, you and I don't have enough time to talk about the horror stories of the lack of diversity and the harassment and the unfairness that has gone on for decades. Right? Yep. Yep. We we have more time. You know, this will we're we're at home a lot, so we you know we could we could, but but yeah, your point is very well taken. Yeah, we could, we can go. Get a, get a cold beverage. <laughs> well, uh, Gabe, thanks for the question. D, thank you for your fulsome answer. Very, very, very thoughtful as, as usual. It's been a real honor uh, being a part of this interview with you. So I, I thought with a couple of those sort of cornerstones or keystones for this whole process. So first off, number one, um, talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not everywhere. Talent is everywhere and opportunity is not everywhere. When it comes to, let's just talk about football, whether it be collegiate level or the NFL, what we have happening in those sports, because what you didn't mention, Gabe, was the percentage of black players in those particular sports. So unlike in America, when we have 330 million people, 42 million African-Americans, you, 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 we still need to do better, but it's a little bit of a numbers game because there's just you know, 42 Americans, we're 12% of the population. There's a little bit of, you know, it's, it's a different challenge. It's an important challenge. It can be, it can be, surmounted, but it is a different challenge. In football, where most of your coaches come from people that play the sport, a good chunk of the people that play the sport at the highest level happen to look like me in, in, in D. Uh, so you have the numbers on your side. So let's just recognize that talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. I like that uh, D mentioned the idea of pipelines, right? So I'll throw a couple of things out there in addition to pipelines. I'll say pipelines, and I'll say pattern recognition, and maybe pattern disruption if you so decide. So the pipeline piece, now, let me do patterns first. Sorry. You'll notice, and I'm an old human intelligence officer from the Air Force. I'm a retired lieutenant colonel. So I spent a lot of time trying to understand patterns of behavior and why people do certain things, right? And if you start looking at the arc or trajectory of careers of people that are athletic directors, and I've been in mentorship programs, O'Kenny Lee, who just took over at Vanderbilt, was a woman that I've mentored for a short period. She's outstanding. I say, go and look at what people have done that are doing what you want to do and see if you can find a pattern, right? It's one of the things that sets us apart from, you know, the beast is that we can do pattern recognition. You do it as lawyers all the time, right? And so it, you'll see things, they'll just kind of jump off the page, you know, kind of like a, you know, a beautiful mind thing, then they'll jump off the page. And then you got to say to yourself, do I want to put people into that pattern? So there's a pipeline, they need to coach quote unquote certain positions. 
black coaches tend to coach certain positions. By the way, my, my head coach in, uh, in Robert Morris, Bernard Clark, who played for Jimmy Johnson, been coaching for 20 years, two years here, did a great job, was coach of the year, co-coach of the year for the conference and up for the Eddie Robinson Award. We're not an HBCU. The award is named for any FCS coach. So I'm very proud of Bernard Clark. And this is his first head coaching job. And I know he's doing a fine job. I wanted to lift him up on campus because there's not a ton of black head coaches out there. But once you identify the pattern, do you can you do things to get people into that pattern so they're going to be successful? Or do you need to blow up that pattern and create other patterns? It's pretty simple stuff. It's not easy to do, but it's pretty straightforward because, you know, let's face it. And this is not a critique of the sons of the get hired. The, the number of last names that are the. the that are the same throughout sport. It's 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 like it's almost like a birthright. And again, I'm not criticizing anybody whose dad or grandfather was a coach. I'm just saying that there is a pattern. Well, you're not going to break that pattern. You're not going to be born of name whatever play that is in college football or, or pro football or so forth and so on. But being deliberate and intentional and saying this is the route that makes sense, get you in that route, or I can systematically change the way that we get people introduced to it. And I know the enemy or, and I know the Rooney's very well. I know it's not perfect. The last part I'm going to mention is that you need all that. And then you need mentorship and sponsorship and not, and, and, and people stop at mentorship. I need a good mentor who, who shows me what to do. No, 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 you don't. You need that. And you need someone who's going to be Hamilton-esque, who's going to be in the room where it happened. When you're not there, who says, Gabe, you're my guy. D's my guy, right? And, and and for black people who in life play a lot more defense than we do offense in life. Yeah. He knows what I'm talking about. We're always concerned about as tough a way as black folk. We're just not quite sure. We don't want to, you know, as tough as we are, but it's tough. So to get a sponsor, to have the hood spot, to get a sponsor, that's hard. And unless you have that sponsorship, in addition to the mentorship, unless you get the pipelines right, which we can do programmatically, and that's where dollars can come in. And the Knight Commission has been very aggressive about that, pushing the CFP to put more money into diverse coaching uh, and recognizing the talents everywhere. Richard Lapchick does a fine job, who actually has a lot of work in South Africa as well, of trying to give us all scores. And uh, with the exception, I think, of the NBA, not anybody's doing that well. That's great advice from both of you. And I think we all need a right-hand man or woman. So it, last question, because I've been educated by you both today. D, you have brought this up in a different context, but the concept of amusing ourselves to death that Neil Postman writes about. And there's this idea, and let me just read the quote, that this form of communication is suited only to the flashing of messages, each to be quickly replaced by a more up-to-date message. Facts push, push other facts into and then out of consciousness at speeds that neither permit nor require evaluation. People no longer talk to each other they entertain each other. We don't exchange ideas. We exchange images. And that was written about the telegraph. <laughs> Twitter and social media is 8 million times more powerful or worse than the telegraph. How as educators, and, and we're all educators in, in different ways, but a big part of our jobs are to educate young men and women. How do we deal with this idea of the amusement to death? And the the fear was that Orwell had said in 1984, they're worried about a tyrannical state that would ban information to keep the public powerless. And Aldous Huxley in A Brave New World said that the population would be too amused by distractions 
entertainment, leisure, and laughter to realize that they had been made powerless. Did you say something, Gabe? I was tweeting. <laughs> <laughs> I was posting on Instagram. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Good. I I was actually sending a telegram. Well done. Well done. <laughs> well done. Uh, so you know, how do what do we do? You know, Gabe, I, I I'm a huge Neil Neil Postman fan, and and Chris Hedges wrote a book, sort of copying not copying, but taking that to the to the sort of the updated level some 20 years later. I think the juxtaposition of of Orwell and Huxley is exactly the danger that our democracy faces. And I'd be lying to you if I had a solution. I watched I watched our CBA, you know, the first collective bargaining agreement, highly contested collective bargaining agreement, probably in a post Twitter world play out in ways that looked like a presidential campaign. Right. It was about attention and the way it was gobbled up in the sports media. It was about entertainment. There were few conversations about real facts. It was hard to get the conversation focused back on facts. I I wish I had solutions. I don't, except to recognize the problem. And I believe firmly that that Huxley's articulation is the problem. And our hope is that people rebound. I think the only piece of good news is you mentioned the telegraph. It's not the first time in our history where we've been bombarded by people who would rather distract than than inform. And, and we've gotten through it, perhaps not great, but we've gotten through it as a country. So that's probably the only piece of good news. I know it sounds pessimistic. Is that, I mean, I, that's like that, that's kind of like the good news where people just jump off a cliff. I mean, Chris, right give us Chris, hope, Chris. Chris. Give us, give us, put down your phone and give us hope, Chris. Oh yeah. Okay. So, OMG, LOL. <laughs> in, all, in all seriousness, you know, we all that gave leads to the VUCA world we live in, right? Volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, and I add an R, which is real time. And so, as as D was saying, we've got to acknowledge. The battlefield. It is sort of that's that's the world we live in, and there's there's a law of thermodynamics. It's the third law of uh, thermodynamics is a law of entropy. You throw the deck of cards up, it doesn't come back together. So to think that we're gonna you know be Superman and fly around the world and make everything go backwards like in that first Superman movie to get Lois Lane back, it's it's not gonna happen. Let us also anoint and and and, and lift up the power of communication and how it has given a term that D and I've been going back and forth on agency to people that didn't have voices. Right. I mean, George Floyd, right. There would be no voice for George Floyd, but for somebody, a very traumatized individual who actually held the camera there. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's a gas glass is half full and the the world's exploding and the other part. So we got to just lift that up and try to understand that, not necessarily regulate the summit. Regulation is part of it, but navigate it. How do we navigate? I mean, Madison said that, you know, his presupposition about American democracy was there would be an educated citizenry. Now, he would have said a white male landowning citizenry, but we've yeah. gotten that. But nonetheless, a, a healthy, skeptical, educated citizenry helps people make the right decisions to discern, you know, what's right and what's wrong and what's real and, and what's not real between deep fakes and all sorts of stuff. So it's getting more and more along that way. And my only answer is that um, go with it, 
in an ethical way. So if you're thinking about some of the things that have happened with technology and information, what I found with students is that if you give them a micro bit, which would be probably shorter than us old old fuddy duddies that we maybe we'd read, you know, five or I used to, I used to joke and say I, I taught a great books course at Oklahoma. It was actually a great paragraphs course because we get, we had to start with paragraphs to get the books. You got to start sometimes with tweets to get the Quibi, to get the Netflix, to get the whatever. But you know what? There's some great things on Quibi and on Netflix and so forth and so on. And so I think that we just need to kind of recognize it that we're that that way that tsunami it's going to keep moving and our surfer friends get out there and they're like hey dude just kind of ride this thing out in the right way and kind of zen and be on top of it a powerful things can happen and that's what we want that those those moments in our nation that's what we want so thank you chris how about one more piece of hope yeah our universities because i do believe i went to a small liberal arts school the way that they thought about or at least taught the world. I certainly didn't agree with with a lot of with everything, but I do think, and, and I believe one hundred percent in everything that, that that Chris talked about. But look, I, I love the NFL. It's a great thing. I, I just I want to close on two things. One, I've never been happier that there was no professional sports over the last five months, because you know what, there was no entertainment to distract us from George Floyd. There was no entertainment to distract us from what was going on when people finally wanted to embrace what Black Lives Matter meant. But the hope is whether we can emerge with a new generation of people out of our universities who leave with a greater power of distinguishing between what's real and what's not. And and that's why I dig this gig. But man, you, you're fighting. You two guys are on the forefront of, of really the hope for our country. And because I do think that that's really the only hopeful thing I can put my arms around right now. Well, I appreciate that. No pressure. Thank you so much, Chris and D. I wish you the best of luck on the new semester, the new football season. Be well. And I hope we get a chance to see each other in person soon.